Hello and welcome once again to the Dicer Screaming, Arr! a podcast brought to you by two people who know no- absolutely nothing about what they're talking about. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. Uh, we have an inkling. We have a clue. Yes, uh, but that's the most the, dangerous thing. We are the Rube Goldberg invention of gaming podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, Probably true. Wildly unnecessarily complex when simplicity would have done the same task. <laughs> I agree. But nonetheless, uh, we thank you for joining us, and of course, it's Reform Friday, so we're on. We stand on the precipice of once again another winter weather disaster. So we'll see how it plays out. Uh, we're getting a little bit of a late start here. I had some car problems, so that's all pretty much uh, taken care of for the moment, at least. We remain indefatigable. We will not quit. Uh, you know, just we're we're going to do this anyway. We will not be stopped. <laughs> ah. But uh, as we're coming at you on Freeform Friday, of course, uh, it's continuing with our Star Trek uh, theme. This is just for this week. Uh, no particular reason for uh, doing Star Trek. Just basically we felt like it. We've been wanting to talk about Star Trek and its relevance not just in gaming, but in general popular culture as well as nerddom. Yeah, and that's what brings us to the Freeform Friday thing, where we actually get to... I'll pick this topic apart because it's got a huge, far-reaching impact, far beyond discussing the games that it has spawned. Uh, they're, well, frankly, you know, we cannot understate the impact that Star Trek, uh, from its first airing, had on what was about to become no nerd culture, uh, science fiction fandom. Uh, you know, this is the elephant in the room. I mean, it, it's one of the biggest, one of the most important. Uh, nerddom 40 years ago generally meant that you came at it from one of two angles. Science fiction, in which case you were probably a big fan of Star Trek, or fantasy, in which case you were a big fan of Tolkien and Dungeons and & Dragons. Uh, and those two things collided frequently. There were people who liked one or the other, but there were also people who liked both. Uh, and things eventually sorted themselves out into one enormous culture of nerdery that celebrates and enjoys pretty much all of the various aspects. I'm very happy about that. Uh, no need for warfare between the camps. Uh, we can all enjoy that these wonderful things happened. So that brings us to Star Trek on Freeform Friday. Yep, and so we're just going to jump right into it and get on with it. But uh, before we do, we have some bills to pay. We have some advertisers, so we're just going to switch over to that, so stick around. We'll be back after the break. All right, and we're back. So, going to talk about Star Trek, its influence, and a lot of the ripple effect that it's had across the various genres of both nerd culture, comics, gaming. Hey, man, it's been all over the place, so uh, we're going to have to start at a point here. So, I think the best place to start is... We gotta I go with Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, I have a book here by Stephen E. Whitfield and Gene Roddenberry, which contains a lot of the making of the first couple seasons of Star Trek. Yeah, it only had three, but uh, it goes a lot of length into how they got started, where uh, they ran into a lot of trouble with studios and production, and all the stuff that they did to make it, in some ways, one of the most uh, groundbreaking television series. At that time, there were, would be others, of course, but uh, for effects and budget, yeah, it uh, it definitely, at times, uh, waxed and waned, both in plenty and in famine. Uh, yeah, let's face it, okay, we're, we're 
rolling the clock back more than 50 years. Okay, uh, well, no, not quite more than 50 years. I, no, no, has it really been? 68? Yeah. Was one of Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, so 60, <clears throat> what, let's see. So when this indication, I, I, and somebody's probably going to tell me that I'm wrong, but I believe it went into syndication around 72. Well, uh, that certainly well, let's see. Uh, the last episode was 68, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, let's see. The very last episode, according to this, is March 29th, 1968. So, yeah, it would be in... Oh, there's our friend David Gerald. Ah, oh, yeah. of many a Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Then, now... You know, this predates Star Wars by a goodly number of years. Uh, and <laughs> uh, television circa the 1960s was a bit of a sterile monoculture. Okay, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Ward and the Beaver and uh, a lot yeah. of, you know, Dobie Gillis and, oh. uh, you know, just... It was not the world... Of cable that we enjoy today with this enormous variety of things that you can look up at any time. Uh, what was on was what was on. And, you know, basically the, the entire thing was a uh, Midwestern picnic lunch uh, with the same familiar ingredients that everybody found comforting and safe. Uh, along comes this show with a lot of very different ideas. Oh. Yeah, and the Twilight Zone and uh, the Outer Limits, of course, uh, on competing networks, had uh, tried to buy for this type of mentality of telling science fiction stories and allegory of uh, modern-day parables or what have you, whatever you want to use for yeah, that. And, I mean, they were not rigidly science fiction per se. No. But they were experimenting. And the but, fact that the door was kind of open, you know, these were shows that had proven that you could get something like this on the air for a while and, you know, have a bit of a little cult following. And So I'm going to have Mike read this here. Oh. From, uh, this was the opener from uh, Gene Roddenberry in uh, Chapter 3 of the book, which uh, talks about the spark of life that got things going for Roddenberry. Intolerance in the 23rd century? Improbable. If man survives that long, he will have learned to take a delight in the essential differences between men and between cultures. He will learn that differences in ideas and attitudes are a delight, part of life's exciting variety, not something to fear. It's a manifestation of the greatness that God, or whatever it is, gave us. This infinite variation and delight, this is part of the optimism we built into Star Trek. And, and that's where he started. I gotta and say, you know, he really made that clear even in the early episodes. Uh, the international nature of the crew, uh, you know, the type of missions on behalf of a unified Earth. Uh, yeah, it all yeah. spelled out a very positive vision of the future. You had Ensign Chekhov. Indeed. In Russian. Uh, in an era when uh, Russia and America were hovering on the brink of war, and it was called the Cold War because it had not exploded into active violence, but was you know, a series of subdued little proxy conflicts and a great deal of espionage and back and forth and uh, diplomatic wrangling. Uh, that era was dominated by that conflict. And to have a show then suggest that someday all of that conflict would be meaningless, forgotten, 
that it would mean nothing to a future Earth. Um, and this was a time also when people greatly feared that nuclear war would annihilate all life on Earth, that it, we would render our planet completely uninhabitable, uh, and that everything that even resembled civilization would be utterly and absolutely destroyed. Um, here is a show that saw something different as a possible outcome, that we would eventually move past these differences, uh, move past these conflicts, and that our higher-minded ideals would, in fact, win the day. And, hey, you know, the Cold War did come to a close. It ceased to be. Uh, it's now a thing barely remembered, uh, you know, principally remembered by the boomer generation, uh, partially remembered by Generation X, but almost entirely forgotten by Generation Afterwards. Uh, they, it simply isn't a part of their childhood experience, uh, hiding under desks, uh, <laughs> under the ludicrous explanation that that was what you should do in the event of a nuclear bomb. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, tuck your head between your legs and yeah, kiss your butt the, goodbye. The laughable euphemism of surviving a nuclear war. Yeah, that, that the uh, patronizing efforts to calm people down and make them feel that there was something they could do uh, were, you know, pretty pretty callow uh, and not very convincing. Uh, eventually, people ran into the reality of it and went, oh dear, that is not a thing we should, we should let happen. That, that was bad. But there was Star Trek putting forward this vision that was not so dark, uh, that was, in fact, incredible, the, the potential that you know, humanity would be exploring the stars centuries from, from then, looking still at the way in which we interact with others, that it would still be a concern, but we would no longer be governed by primitive instinct, uh, you know, divided by tribalism, uh, you know, full of contempt for one another over the most minute of details. Uh, that's some pretty high-minded ideals to, to punch their way into place in that era. So, gotta hand it. Uh, Gene Roddenberry certainly came at them with something that was not your usual fare. Yeah, and the big thing with science fiction is rather than use everything as kind of a... It's science fiction. It's just technology. It's like magic. It's transistors and stuff and things. <laughs> yeah, it did lead to some in the later series to some particular verbiage of technobabble that I still find incomprehensible. You know, oh, if we just change the polarity of the warp base conductor through the deflector screen, we'll change the polarity of the entire warp field generation system. And therefore, we'll achieve the thing that we need to do. Um, sure. And that comes from a little bit of Roddenberry and a lot of the original writing staff wanting to keep... If they decided that in one episode that something worked this way, then further on down the line, or in another episode, it would also work this way. Yeah, continuity was an issue. And so they wanted to keep sort of that part of science in the science fiction. And they wanted it to be somewhat believable, although many things like transfer, transporters, where you literally break down the body by molecule by molecule and reassemble it somewhere else, is akin to a suicide machine. But, hey, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's a thing, and... You know, that was to prevent them having these long special effects sequences of a shuttlecraft coming out of the ship and flying down to the 
planet surface and then, you know, having the entry scene or whatever. And instead you get a sparkly beam. Yep. You know, just and beam. it was just, it worked and that's what they wanted to do. Uh, um, they did put limits on it, actually, in the original Oh, yeah, show, well, you know, you know it, it would seem like almost every other day uh, that some kind of uh, space weather would have influenced the type of... <laughs> it's, you know, it's partly uh, ion storms today, so the transporter and the deflector screens are just down. No reason. I just, uh, you know, it's, it's the weather today. <laughs> Thank you, Walter Cronkite. Okay, so... You know, they tried, they worked really well, and uh, we're going to go one more from this book of making a Star Trek, and uh, <clears throat> this is about some of the stuff that they uh, used in the props department, and this is uh, Roddenberry, he liked to tell this story quite a bit. He says, we knew we needed a sick bay and medical department on the ship, so we sat down and thought to ourselves, what will a sick bay look like in the future? And one of the first things that occurred to us was the really primitive nature of many aspects of medical science of the day, taking a person's temperature by sticking a thermometer in his mouth or whatever, wrapping the arm in order to check the blood pressure, inserting a needle in a vein in order to draw blood to be examined, etc. So we asked ourselves, what are the more efficient things man needs in a sickbay of the future? And logically, almost necessarily, we soon must have beds in which patients are seen being continually scanned by sensor devices. These devices will maintain a constant physiological record of every function and activity going on within the body. The concept as a logical extension of today's medical science was verified by sources in the scientific community and was made an integral part of our medical department aboard the Enterprise. And the concept took the form of a built-in bed positions with diagnostic panel above each without attaching anything to the body of the patient. A medical probe continually scans the patient, taking readings, records them through the diagnostic panel, and registers them there visually when desired by the doctor or nurse. Star Trek had not been on the air very long before we were contacted by no less than three separate research organizations, all of whom demanded to know how we had obtained the information on the same devices they had under development. <laughs> and so this was kind of the charm of Star Trek, is that a lot of the technology that they invented for the show kind of seemed to make a certain type of sense, especially with people in the research areas, including NASA, as well as, and just mentioned, the medical fields as well as communications and, uh, you know, uh, flip phones. Um, well, the, the idea of a non-intrusive medical procedure, you know, the before the era of the full MRI and CAT scan. Uh, yep. You know, the notions were already creeping up on us. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of where do we move forward to after having done it this way for so long? Uh, you know, the first principles already involved were, like, how can we accomplish this without the crudity, the pain, uh, and the intrusion of older practices. So with that as your driving idea, it's not hard to imagine that science fiction auteurs would have the same notions as scientists. Yeah, and it so, sort of lended a credulity, a credibility, excuse me, of how science fiction could start to narrate the future. And that was one of the big charms of Star Trek, is that we could all start to get along with one another if we just put our minds to it. Yeah, self-opening doors? Yeah, that didn't take long to pop up, too. You yep. know? And people were enamored of that idea, and then it was a very simple process of... With the sh sh sounds. You know, they've got, first, it's got to know that somebody's coming, and two, it has to open and close quickly enough that it does its job without harming anybody. You know, that was really all you had to figure out, and bam, you got automatic doors. Uh, we take them for granted today. They're everywhere, every grocery store. Uh, but once upon a time, <laughs> circa the era of Star Trek, 
that was an unheard of thing. What yeah, and a lot of aliens country. also were uh, seen as nemesis. Um, and indeed, Star Trek did have uh, nemesis aliens, the Klingons and Romulans come to mind, but there are many other adversarial races that uh, cropped up here and there. But uh, they also had an alien on board, a half-human. Oh, half-human, half-Vulcan. Who was seemingly always at war with himself, but yet remained this very logical, stoic, almost a living computer. Yeah, Spock. Uh, Good old Spock. You know, this was uh, something that I think a lot of... I'm I'm just going to come out and say it, nerds, okay? A lot of young nerds identified with Spock because, frankly, uh, you know, reason is admirable, okay? Uh, but it's not a world that is always friendly to reason, and reason will not always get you, you know, the, the desired end goal. Uh, so watching the conflict between Spock uh, and his two natures, I, you know, I think a lot of people just automatically identified with that. Uh, they saw in that conflict what it means, in many cases, to, to be human and to be fairly intelligent. Uh, it's a tough it's a tough racket sometimes. Yeah, and it would become a trope, you know, between um, McCoy and Spock. <laughs> Damn your Vulcan logic! Your green blood! Yeah, you know, green-blooded Vulcan. Yeah, so, um... There was a lot of great stuff that was written right in uh, Star Trek, baked in, if you want to call it that, um, that made it unique and appealing science fiction platform to tell stories. And that was the wagon train to the stars that Roddenberry talked about when he was pitching it to other studios. Now, of course, uh, there's a lot in this book, uh, The Making of Star Trek. If you're interested in the older stuff, I'd recommend uh, picking up a copy or finding one uh, laying around there. It's probably well out of print, but uh, since it's got David Gerald in there, so, you know, can't be that old. Now, I, I suppose we should segue into... Uh, you know the the rise of the rest of the empire. Okay, the, yeah. This this one little show for three years uh, with its international crew and its high minded ideals made a mark on a lot of viewers. Uh, it didn't seem to have the ratings at the time, but you know this is one of the early cult classics. Okay, and now obviously it's such a classic that it is no longer a cult classic. It is just a classic. But at the time, there was a small but hardened army of ardent fans. This predates the era of the DVD, uh, the era of the VHS or VCR. Uh, It was in syndication and would pop up on various TV channels around the country in limited form. And so people continued to be exposed to it And the culture loved it so much that years after the closing of the show, uh, it got a treatment as a movie. Yep, it got into the movie era. So, yeah, Star Trek had been around. And another thing, too, was the convention. Uh, Of course, uh, Star Trek was not any way or shape or form the one that started the uh, fan convention, but it was very popular. One of the most popular of fan conventions at that time. Yeah, and also with a... Uh, extraordinary letter writing campaign to NBC to get the uh, episode of Star Trek back on air or start a new series. That was a big part that uh, played a lot into making Star Trek a kind of phenomenon. 
And even it said that uh, Roddenberry flirted for a while of starting religion like Scientology out of it. But he were kind of looking at how it got handled by its, and how it handled its other uh, author. Yeah. Uh, he kind of backed away from it. Yeah, uh, watching uh, something go down the road of really abusing those principles. Was Hanlon was lesson. not, um, or not right, Hanlon. Hubbard. Hubbard, excuse me. Forgive me. Um, no yeah, L. Ron Hubbard, yeah, didn't, uh, he kind of lost control of what he started and it kind of became... Snowballed. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Roddenberry, justifiably, did not want that kind of legacy. Uh, so the legacy that he got was one instead of enormous affection and great loyalty uh, with yep. so many enthusiastic fans that took great pleasure from all of the incredible detail that went into the Star Trek verse. So there were also novelizations taking place, uh, even after the series was off. Yeah, the there was an animated TV show that kind of carried on for the next two years of the five-year voyage. And uh, while it's uh, you can see them on YouTube, it's kind of funny from the fact that uh, they got a lot of the actors to get in on it. So, oh, happily. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, when they came out with the movies, um, there was kind of a, a point that, it almost looked like a Star Trek TV series was going to happen. And the first movie came out and it was kind of seen as like, oh, okay, this is going to be a uh, opener to a new series of TV shows of Star Trek, which Did well, it didn't happen. manifest. Uh, there was much gnashing of teeth and great frustration in the ranks of nerdery. Yep, and again, it's kind of one of those things where sometimes the fandom takes a life of its own. Um Partially due to the fact that a lot of the fans were so vocal about certain aspects of Star Trek wanting to be incorporated in things. The uh, first space shuttle was named the Enterprise, which was just a uh, mock-up of to see how it would uh, fly inside the atmosphere rather than an actual functioning one. So, yeah, yeah. that didn't work it, out so well because, you know, if they just would have let it go, they would have named the first one the Columbia and then the next one... Would the one that would have been flying would have been the Enterprise, but hey, you know, ah, you live, you learn. Um, but yeah. uh, the movie came out, and uh, well, let's just um, we're, we can't go through a, a point by point on every movie, but this no, one no. we're going to spend a little bit of time in this next one talking about because the first one was rather indulgent in special effects. I mean, it was like the first time that real money, real money had been put into Star Trek, and they went overboard. Yeah, they did the best they could with the technology available at the time to present a real vision of what Star Trek could have been had they been better funded. You know, well, had yeah. those things been possible. But, I mean, mind you, this was more than a decade after the filming of the original show. Yeah. Albeit just by a little. Uh, so out comes this first movie. And it was quite a special effects, you know, hit. But it but lacked the story. They sacrificed a lot in terms of developing a really solid storyline. Uh, and it came off like a big question mark. You yeah, know. What, the heck, what did the heck did I just see? But, you know, for better or for worse, uh, they, it got things rolling. And the second movie, well, we'll talk about this one. Yeah. Wrath of Khan. Now you put two hams. You have William Shatner and Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, Ricardo Montalban. Fighting for space on the big screen. Oh, boy. Bringing back a character from one of the early episodes where the, you know, genetically modified superhumans Who? Uh, of another era, uh, you know. Yeah, that, that, did, that one didn't make syndication very much because of it was so seen as so intense and so sexually uh, 
Uh, well, all right. Uh, yes. Charged. Ah, well, you cannot. You know, like no scene, no television screen can help but smolder in the presence of Ricardo Montalban. Uh, yep. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. It, uh, however hackneyed it may be, whatever trope it might be, uh, while they may have been a little on the ham side as actors, uh, Shatner and Montalban. Uh, they did an amazing job. Yeah, you know, they, now that was the where the, both the effects and the story and the characters were all in tune. The cat and mouse rivalry, you know, back and forth. Uh, man, once again, the hubris. Uh, you know, the lesson incarnate in the original episode. I'm laughing that, at the superior intellect. Yeah. Um, that uh, the hubris, the arrogance, uh, are ultimately the undoing of the so-called superior humans. Uh, that that incredible uh, disregard for everyone other than themselves lures them into their doom every single time. Uh, there's a little historical lesson there, too. Mr. Yeah. Roddenberry was not without his uh, sources for that. Yeah, that kind of, it was kind of the <laughs> fact that uh, he, however flawed or imperfect humans are, that imperfectness keeps us balanced. And take away some of the things that keep us uh, grounded and humble. Well, yeah, the, the, the gist of it is that it's a learning curve. And, and so, yeah, it would go on to uh, six other movies, and then, of course, we'd go to The Next Generation, which, okay, first three seasons, I'm going to give you a pass. Not very good. But, of course, then we get the Borg out of it. There will be people who disagree. I enjoyed uh, some of the early season work in The Next Generation, not right out of the gate first season so much. Yeah. Uh, but by the time they'd had time to wear their hats for a while and, you know, have a feel yep. for who they were. End of the second season into the third was starting to catch a pace. Yeah. And you could start to see glimmerings of what would become the greatness of Picard. His intellectualism, his aloofness, but also his compassion. Yeah, this is where they, they split the original captain in half. Yep. Okay, they, they took Kirk, who was the classic pulp adventurer. Yep, uh, two-fisted, hard-drinking, yeah. hard-loving Captain and, Kirk. Yeah, you know, they took that and they just cut that guy in two pieces, and the second-in-command was... The Explorer. They took the Explorer uh, and the intellectual side and made him into a much more fleshed-out character. Now, I liked Picard, uh, principally because... Uh, and Riker. Well, oh, sure, everybody liked Riker. He was very likable. Uh, but I liked Picard as a captain because they had represented someone who was a diplomat, uh, you know, knowledgeable in matters of espionage, but very honorable in intention. Principle. Uh, somebody who, you know, had the intellectual chops and the rigidly self-adhered-to principles that did not bend. Uh, and they... They put that character in many a position that uh, Captain Kirk would have handled very differently. Uh, yeah, they tested a lot of Picard's principles. Um, also, Picard was an explorer. Yeah, at heart, he was a discoverer uh, he, and a gentle one, as opposed to a you know uh, harsh image of discovery as inevitably involving the destruction of someone else uh, or the exploitation. Here, we had the discoverer, uh, you know, chronicling uh, just you know I 
what is it? You know, take only memories, leave only footprints. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was a very different attitude. I liked it. Yeah, and um, the next generation would go on to spawn uh, the other sin- uh, spinoffs, which we'll also touch upon here. But I uh, just want to revisit the next generation because um, it ended up. Uh, going in a new variety of places. Some people claim that the political correctness of the times kind of modified or modified the way that Star Trek was going, and Roddenberry seemed to be pretty much on board with that. But they made it in a way, to many of the writers that would test that, that everybody just gets along, but what kind of weirdness is this? Um, <laughs> the writers would test it from time to time, and it would become more manifest later in shows like Deep Space Nine. Now, again, you get a very different central authority figure, captain, commander, whatever, Commander Sisko. And here we go with Adrian Brody, and just his... his oh, incredible presence. Yeah, his presence is unmistakable. And he also put a lot of people, good people around with him. Uh, Gerard, oh. Gerard, uh, Gerard. Goodness, I can't even remember his name now. Well, there was... Uh... The Cardassian uh, Taylor. Yes. Oh, yeah, well, but also Rene Albertinois. Yeah. Rest yeah. in peace, Rene. Otto. Uh, as Odo. Uh, just a, a lot of interesting characters uh, that I, they really had fleshed out uh, enough that they could have nuanced stories, not only about the incredible amount of espionage and intrigue going on in a near wartime footing, uh, with the. Federation essentially somewhat straitjacketed in terms of what it could and could not do. Yeah, and then actually exploding into a real hot war and uh, yeah. Cisco having to make the hard choices that come with being in the decision maker's chair. Yeah, no longer just a you know peacetime diplomat, but also now a wartime leader. I, just that show, Deep Space Nine just ran the gamut. Yeah, and they got warp out of the Enterprise always being told Belay that order, Mr. Worf. Oh. Mm. Now, you know, you get to see Worf in full uh, glory, as, as it were, you know, becoming the emperor of the Klingon Empire for about, what, three seconds? <laughs> <laughs> well, you would have known. Um, yeah, so uh, such humble beginnings. Um, but, yeah, that show and a lot of the characters, and there's so many we can just talk about and spend episodes talking oh, about yeah. the magnificence of the writing. And sometimes the writing was good, and sometimes it was a little off, and sometimes it was just a flat It was miss. touch and go with all the series, including Voyager and yeah. some of the other later you know, yeah, and then expansions. To... Uh, you know, there were touch and go moments. There was some really admirable writing where, and science fiction is like that. It is a tough, tough racket. Yep. Having a new concept or putting a spin that is fresh on an old concept can get very hard to do. So props to the people who pulled it off. Yeah, and you see like in um, Voyager with Captain Janeway, yet another take on a leader and a crew. Of course, this one was starting to run at a little bit of a ragged pace because they were so far off by themselves, you really didn't get a sense of what they were doing other than just trying to survive. And the emphasis uh, early on were the... Tense differences between the crew. Yep. Uh, that it was a much more internal struggle. It had very much to do with a group of disparate characters uh, stuck together. And this is the only way any of us are ever going to have a shot at wait, seeing home again. Wait, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> the out not. Yeah, I have spoken. 
<laughs> but it, it was a unique spin on the Star Trek verse, and they they certainly expanded on a lot of concepts and linked the you know the show to other ongoing events in other shows. Uh, fascinatingly, yep. I, I liked watching that uh, unfold. Uh, you, when you see the multiverse theories that are now espoused with multiple shows, mm -hmm. uh, in some cases even across uh, one or two different networks, uh, interspersing data from other shows on other networks uh, as part of the same verse. Wow! Okay, but again, Star Trek was also kind of at the front of that. You know, keeping, yep. a, keeping a continual uh, or a continuum of uh, actual events where there is a relationship between story A and story B. It might be thin, but there generally was some connection. But now there's a new Star Trek show, and of course, uh, at Voyager, there was Enterprise, which uh, Scott ba Bale, or uh, Bakula. Scott, Scott Bakula. Bakula. Thank you. Yes, Scott Bakula is the captain. Uh, Archer was a great uh, cast and did a great job. I liked the show, but I kind of had some points with it. But again, Minor quibbles aside, I still enjoyed watching it, and it was a, a good show. I just wish that they had made it more Star Trek rather than kind of an alternate universe, which they'd end up doing with the J.J. Abrams uh, new Star Trek movies, which are perfectly fine with me. I have a little problem with the lens flare and the constant moving camera. Can we just stay still to watch a scene? I mean, I, Yeah, I look, uh, I, I've got to say the shaky cam is more appropriate for the Blair Witch Project, okay? Or Cloverfield. Uh, you know, if you're if you're doing something like that, this is totally called for. Uh, but, you know, honestly, it was almost impossible to properly enjoy some of the action sequences because I could watch it four or five times, and I'm still not sure what happened. I, uh, what? Uh, whoa. Uh, just, yeah, it got blinding and distracting and really detracted. But... In favor of them, I am going to say that there were some terrific homages to the original series included in uh, the Abrams movies, uh, and I did find a lot of humor in it, uh, and I, I can't say I came away completely dissatisfied, but, you know... Yeah, there's, there's been some differences, and little, I think that... A little going overboard is what mm -hmm. happened there, so it didn't ruin it for me, but it, it was a minor detraction. Yeah, and with the Discovery, I guess we go right back again. They're trying to retell the tale of Star Trek without, or before the original series, without really using much of the original series per se. So, I mean, they've got Spock, I guess. But I haven't really watched it, so I'm not going to go too far on a limb here. I just, I have a friend, Pat uh, Galligan, if you're listening, you know exactly what I feel on it. And uh, <laughs> you've, you've filled me in quite a bit. I, I think that sometimes... Trying to make it too your own or go too far out of the lines makes it somewhat nebulous, its connection to the original Star Trek. And that first section we read, I think, still, to me, appeals more to what I feel Star Trek is, in essence. That we learn to put our differences aside and look at all the good stuff we can do. has been the enduring legacy that I've tried to take with me from the lessons of those uh, early Star Trek episodes into the new stuff. And I want to enjoy the new stuff. I'm not trying to say, oh, it's terrible, you know, that they do new stuff and it's no. not the way I like it. You know, hey, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be for I me. I can't actually say that. You know, I mean, in good faith, uh, 
Yeah. I did enjoy the new material. I, I and you know I, I don't despise any of the the new shows. Uh, honestly, I can't say I've ever despised a Star Trek product per se uh, unilaterally. There yeah. have always been, there's been some, elements that I've really enjoyed. There's been Gold Key Comics, the DC Comics Star Trek run, which was excellent. Uh, there was a lot of good stories out of that and some great writers. But let's go out a little limb here and end this up. Uh, there's one thing I want to end this on. is as, as far as Star Trek has gone out on away from, I think, some of the core essences of what I think Star Trek is, Another show has arisen. Yeah, the you Orville. were going to bring it up. Yes, the Orville. Oh, now it's... just like kind of like the new Twilight Zone, there's a certain loving homage that's almost, well, you said it best, creepily <laughs> erotic. Yeah, it is. It you just have that awkwardly erogenous, you know, sense from it. I like, love you so much. I just, I just want to take this moment. Okay, stop. It's just become uncomfortable for both of us. Yeah, it's like a damp handshake. Okay? Oh. It just it's that close to being awkward. But it's still uh, good. You know, but the Orville um you could tell it was made with enormous love for the original Star Trek series. And in spite of the huge leaps forward in science fiction uh possibilities in the era of CGI, uh what it stayed true to in its writing was the quirkiness of science fiction literature. The the awkward, let's examine a modern day conflict, something that troubles us today, but we'll view it through the lens of a faraway place that is very different from here. And yet the conflict is the same. That is true science fiction. That is yeah. the crux of, of what makes a good science fiction tale uh, to me. Not to everybody. Right, and I think that's where it kind of comes full circle, is that um, trying to be Star Trek by being more Star Trek than Star Trek was, is kind of, I don't know, I think it's kind of killing it. And I think when you do something like, when you see the Orville, you kind of get the sense that you're not really trying to tell that exact tale, you're just trying to tell it like, in the same vein. Yeah, the way it would be told if we were Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, and... I've got to say, it also creates a kind of uh, moral compass to put the Star Trek uh, verse back on its track. Mm -hmm. You know, the popularity of, like, the surprise hit, uh, the Orville, reminds Star Trek that, hey, wow, uh, you know, gosh, (laughs) here's a show that uh, does us better than us. You know, we got to step our game up. You know, got to go back to the well. And let's hope they do, because it's not like I've despised Star Trek products recently. Uh, no. But um, there's room for improvement, and you know what? If they take that as a cue, more power to them. Yeah. Well, I think with that, we've pretty much uh, worn out your eardrums and also abused your patience long enough. Oh, yeah. That it's time for us to pack it in to it, the old shuttle bay and... Uh, Boldly go off to where podcasts have never gone Boldly before. Boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Uh, well, no, I'm sure many of them. Yeah. <laughs> but again, uh, uh, we appreciate your patience and uh, forbearance on us stumbling across a few things. And I uh, hope that our little uh, ramble, meandering r- ramble, has uh, delighted you and you got something out of it. Because next week we're talking all about Lost in Space. No, just kidding. Um <laughs> 
We're just going to end it up on a high note that, uh, yeah, you know, Star Trek is uh, well enjoyed and well worth uh, investing in. And not just out of gaming or anything else, but because it does have kind of a, a little bit of a high-minded ideal behind it. But it's still fun to enjoy and watch just as a show all on its own. There are so many things from so many of the episodes and from the movies and the novelizations. There are so many things that trope-like they may be. They can also be harvested by gamers everywhere to great effect at the table with your friends. And some, in some cases, if you happen to have a table full of Trek fans, uh, the homages will be spotted almost instantly and will be appreciated properly. So, yep. you know, absolutely. Remember to keep time. on your soundboard, DM soundboard the uh, Spock Kirk fight uh, theme. And. You know, always, uh, if somebody smiles during that, then, you know, you've done your job. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so uh, that's going to do it for us tonight, I think. And yeah, uh, hopefully uh, we'll survive this winter apocalypse that's supposedly headed towards just <laughs> four inches of snow. Oh, and, uh, no. Yeah, so, uh, you know. Michigan will never be the same. No, I kid. I kid. Yeah. Uh. But um, if you have any comments or questions and concerns or things you'd like us to talk about, you can get a hold of us on our Dicer Screaming Facebook page. Just leave a comment or drop us a message there. Uh, of course, you can get a hold of us on Twitter at all the usual places. And also, you can download the Anchor app and leave a voicemail for us because we'd love to hear from you. And, oh, uh, sure. And we'll put you on the air and talk about things that um, you liked and things you didn't like. Oh, absolutely. we're not shy here. Yeah, we, and, and we're not especially proud. You know, if, if, no. we've, if we've dropped the ball dramatically, we have no I problem. I drop it all the time. Uh, yeah, I'm, not... <laughs> I'm like a monkey with a football. Well, at least you're not a monkey with a hand grenade. All right. Because that All could right. be amusing or tragic, depending on your distance. Okay. <laughs> so. Oh, comedy plus, tra- or what is it? Tragedy plus time equals comedy. Mm-hmm. Oh. All right. All right, but until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. See ya.